0: Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, April 5th, 2018, is a Sandra and Richard Rippey Lecture on American History. Historian Richard Brookheiser, in conversation with New York Historical's Vice President for Public Programs, Dale Gregory, discusses Gouverneur Morris's time in Paris on the eve of the French Revolution. And now, enjoy the podcast. So I wanted to open up,
1: Rick and audience, um, because I, I'm imagine, I imagine that all of you have not been to our whole series this thus far with... Um, our Hamilton's Best Friend, bless you, uh, our Hamilton's Best Friend series, which uh, Rick and I are now talking about what we're going to do next fall. We have more ideas. Um, so I thought I'd just read a, just a brief summary, then Rick can fill in just a two-minute, and then we'll move on to France. So just curious, how many have been to our, any one of our Hamilton Best Friends programs? Well, that's wow! Good. Wow! We really have a following here, so now we're even more motivated to do some more of these things. Um, but for those of you who haven't, um, Gouverneur Morris was born in 1752 in what is now the South Bronx near Yankee Stadium. So, and he had a bit of an aristocratic ancestry with colonial judges and royal governors. Um, Growing up in that location, he certainly, had he been living now, would be a New York Yankees fan, I'm sure. Um, He attended King's College, now Columbia University, at the age of 12. Continued on to law school, became friends with Alexander Hamilton, and then joined the fight against the British during the American Revolution visited Washington at Valley Forge, that was one of our programs, during the winter of 1777, to report to the Continental Congress on the, on the condition of the soldiers at camp, where many were starving, ill, and naked, lacking the most basic supplies. After the Revolution, he was appointed to the Constitutional Convention, where he played a major role in the debates on the Constitution's content, and ultimately was chosen by his peers to write the final draft. And Rick, just fill in wherever you want, and then we'll move on to France.
2: He gave more speeches at the Constitutional Convention than anyone else, even though he missed an entire month.
1: So, <laughs> And that's it.
2: <laughs> so he goes, uh, he goes to France, just, just for the pers- his personal background. He goes to France in February of 1789. And this is something he's wanted to do for years. He's wanted to go to Europe since he was a very young man. Uh, he had an uncle who had spent some time in England, so I think that may have inspired him. Um, the man he studied law with um, talked him out of it, said, no, stay here, make money. Look, your your uncle went to Europe and he blew through all his money. You don't want to do that. So he took the advice at first, but this desire is in there. And uh, I think it's because he's adventurous. Uh, He's also a very sophisticated um, person. He's a little bit of an oddball. And I think he wants to try something different. Uh, He's also met uh, and come to know Frenchmen during the Revolution. He meets Lafayette at Valley Forge. Uh, There are other French officers and diplomats um, that he... Uh, meets there and in Philadelphia. So uh, by 1789, he's, he's, um, he's ready to do this. He's, uh, uh, he is in his 30s, in his late 30s. And his opportunity comes from Robert Morris, who's, who is no relation, but they have worked together during the revolution uh, running the finances of the government. And then after the revolution, their business partners. Robert Morris is the richest man in the United States. Uh, he, he has investments in land. He's a merchant. He sends the first American merchant ship to China. Uh, he's, he's got his fingers in everything. And he has a lot of investments also in France. He has a contract with the French government to supply France with all of its tobacco for three years. He's going to be the middleman. He'll get it from, from Virginia and Maryland and, you know, the French will pay him so much for all that he guarantees to ship it over to France. And he makes a nice percentage himself. Uh, he also has other schemes. He would like to get, you know, Frenchmen investing in American land with him. Uh, Robert Morris also thinks, maybe I can buy all of America's debt to France. Maybe I can just buy the whole chunk for 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, and this we're talking about $34 million of debt, which is... A huge sum for 1789. The thing about Robert Morris is, when, whenever any of his ventures go south, he always doubles down, or he plunges into something new. He never pulls in his horns. He just keeps going and going. And, and this will finally ruin him. Um, not Governor Morris, who has less money but is a little more careful about it. But so for all these French schemes, Robert Morris wants a person in Paris, you know, be there on the spot. So. He's going to send his younger partner, Governor Morris, to Paris, and he arrives in Paris in February 1789.
1: Now, the tobacco crop—wasn't he? Robert Morris was not able to deliver.
2: That, well, yeah, right? this is the problem with some of his schemes—they don't work. So, um, <laughs> right, he is in arrears, and you know, and Governor Morris is supposed to, you know, smooth this over and you know, calm people down and do this kind of thing. Um, but so he, sh- he shows up in France, and um, w- without any planning to do this, uh, he arrives at a-, a very fraught political moment for France because the French state uh, is broke. Uh, because part-
1: they partly- well, part of the problem yeah. is
2: us. Uh, they spent a lot of money on the American Revolution. Uh, they really supported the cause not only with troops but also with with loans to the united states and this the, their budget took a hit because of that uh, but also the whole French taxation system was just dysfunctional. Uh, a lot of the people who had money were exempt from taxes that is the nobility nobility. Um, you know, the nobility was a lot of, many of them were wealthy in land, but they didn't have to pay taxes. They were exempt. So, so it was a very um, unfair, inequitous system, and, and the revenues just weren't coming in. So the king had a, a minister of finance. He was from Switzerland, a man named Jacques Necker. And uh, he had been the minister of finance, and then he got fired because he told the king, you really have to publish a budget that the public can see. uh, The king did not like that, so he fired him. But then he brings him back because he realizes, you know, Necker is smart and he's capable. I want to give him another chance. And Necker's idea is that the only way to make reform happen is I have to get a national consensus behind it. You know, I, I can't just try and talk the nobility into it. I have to show them and the whole country that we are serious about, about making this system more fair and, and more effective. So they revive this old institution that has not met for 175 years. And these are the three estates of the realm. And in France, those are the commoners, the nobility, and the clergy. So they hadn't met since, what, 1614, what, you know, and so suddenly they're going to bring this back. Uh, the representatives of the commoners are chosen in elections, and the franchise is really pretty broad. It's, it's um, as broad as anything over here. So this is that's quite a change from all previous French practice. Uh, and when they... Uh, assemble in Versailles in the spring of 1789, and, and Governor Morris is there on day one. He sees, sees them all parading into Versailles, and they all have uniforms that are prescribed by court protocol. The clergy has to dress you know, robes of such and such color, and the nobility have different robes, and the commoners have to be all in black. And so he sees this uh, procession. He's there to talk to someone about the tobacco contract.
1: Okay.
2: That's why he wants to be there. But he's, he's also observing
1: us. Now, now, at this time also, w- weren't there terrible problems with crops and people yes. not being able to get bread? And,
2: yes. There, uh, had been, there had been bad weather for two years. There had been droughts. Uh, there had been um, freezes, which, which made the rivers um, useless for transport and, and you know France relied more on its network of rivers than, than on its roads to get things around. Um, there, there had been uh, floods. there had just been a, a string of, of really bad weather. Uh, so um, there was bad suffering in the countryside, which is you know uh, an unfortunate coincidence with this moment of political change. Now, I should say the reason we know you know what Governor Morris saw. At the opening of the estates, is when he gets to France, he decides to keep a diary. Uh, He has never kept a diary before, but one of the first things he does when he arrives in Paris is he goes out and he buys a book. A black
1: book with green vellum.
2: Right, and he's he's, apple green. Apple green, and he's he's going to keep this diary. And that tells me that he thinks this is going to be an interesting time in my life, you know, and I want a record of it. I want to remember what I do and what I see. And what I experience, so he's he's avid to 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 taste life in France, and then he wants to remember it, and he wants to capture it, and he wants to write it down. So and, and he does this very industriously, and we have this this record, which is really a remarkable, you know, observer's record of the early days of the revolution. But we're not; it hasn't happened quite yet, um, because here here the estates are are meeting at Versailles. And then, almost immediately, uh, a dispute breaks out among them. And the reason is that the commoners are uh, as numerous as all the representatives of the nobility and all the representatives of the clergy. In other words, you know, say the nobility is X and the clergy is X, the commoners are 2X. Now, the form of the three estates is that all the estates are equal they all have you know the, the same cloud but then the commoners say well look let's we should do this by head which of course will give the advantage to them and you know the other estates don't want to do that although <clears throat> there are liberal noblemen and there are liberal clergymen who are sympathetic to this idea and what they start to do is meet with the commoners and then there's a, a, a famous moment where the commoners uh, retreat to a building called the tennis court, and they say that we will be uh, the new legislature for the French nation. We, we are going to meet among ourselves, and, and we are going to um, shape the political Rip, destiny.
1: Do we want the slides yet? Oh,
2: yes, we have a slide. Let's see what we
1: have. We can. have the tennis court slide. All right, how do I work? There we go. Now, these are people, obviously. Okay, here we go. There's the tennis court. There's the... Whoops.
2: Yeah. There's the oath of the tennis court. Um, These are all the uh, mostly commoners pledging their allegiance. If you see a kind of a fascist tinge to the iconography, hold on to that thought.
1: (laughs) Um,
2: But so this is happening in the spring. You see there's one man there who's not swearing allegiance... He's the one skeptic in the room. But everybody else, they're all swept up. Here's, here's a clergyman. Um, was that
1: Talleyrand? Uh,
2: I, I, I don't think that is him, but he is an example. Uh, the Bishop of Autun is, is a man who is named Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigore. Uh, and his family was very old, very fancy. Uh, in the 10th century, one of his ancestor's ancestors had had an argument with the first king of, one of the first kings of France, Louis Capet, and uh, uh, Louis Capet said to him, who made thee count? And he shot back, who made thee king? You know, so they're, they're, this was a proud old family, a very rapacious, um, greedy, good at enriching itself, uh, and Talleyrand had some of those qualities, but uh, he was also very smart, very political. Uh, his family, he was the eldest son, but his family had shunted him to the clergy because he'd, he'd had an accident as as a child. His nurse had put him on top of a bureau and he'd fallen off and crippled one of his feet. So that meant you can't be in the military, which was the typical course for an eldest son uh, of a noble family. So they said, all right, you're not going to inherit, but we'll put you in the church. Uh, he had no interest in being in the church. Um, I don't think he was an atheist, but he didn't—he didn't really believe in any of it. He, he was a pretty good administrator when he became a bishop. Uh, when his father was on his deathbed, his father asked Louis the "Please make my son a bishop." And Louis the Sixteenth said, "Yes, I'll do that." So, um, so this young man—okay, um, so this young man becomes a prince of a church, prince of the church. He also admires Voltaire hugely, you know, the great enemy of the Catholic Church, the great skeptic. Uh, So, um,
1: Well, Talleyrand uh, will come up later in our discussion because there's sort of a love triangle. Sort of. uh, There's
2: a definite love triangle.
1: We'll we'll come back to that with Gouverneur Morris, uh, a lovely woman. Well, Tally yes. Oh,
2: yeah, okay. Let's, no, let's jump, jump to jump that. Are we going to jump to that? Okay. Yeah, because this, <laughs> this this begins now. This is when he first meets both uh, Talleyrand, who's still at this point a bishop, and he also meets uh, the Comtesse de Flau, uh Adelaide de Flau. She is married uh, to a, a count who's 35 years older than she is. Uh, she's the daughter of a courtesan. Uh, this was an arranged marriage, as all Marriages in the French upper classes were—they were, were arranged—and her lover is um, Talleyrand, the the bishop, the, the French bishop, and he is the he is the father of her son. Uh, she has one child, a boy, and then um, the midwife, uh, I think, was was incompetent, and she was never she never had any other children. So perhaps she was became unable to have any other children, but. Um, <coughs> He is the father of her son. Uh, Morris learns, you know, as he, as he gets into their social circle, she has a salon. Now, salons were uh, periodical <coughs> meetings that um, women would host, intelligent society women. And they would have their intelligent friends over, and they, they'd talk about <coughs> anything, you know, literature, gossip, uh, you know, politics, certainly as the estates are meeting, this becomes a topic. And um, this is one of the salons that Morris begins to attend. And so he, he's figuring out the relationships of all these people. And, and he, you know, he learns pretty quickly the, who, who the father of her son is. But he also, um, one of his first comments in his diary about this woman is that she's probably no enemy to intrigue. And no, she isn't. And um, she and he fall for each other. And they will, they will keep it up for years. Uh, and it's, it's a stormy relationship because he will not commit himself. She asks him at several points, um, couldn't we get married? Maybe I could leave my husband. Maybe I could marry you. No, I, I don't want that. Um, she, she will say, uh, I'll be faithful only to you. You know, if you like, I'll give up um, Talleyrand. I'll, I'll be yours alone. He says, no, I don't want that. You should just follow your own judgment. Uh, any of the women in the audience have had experience with men like this. Perhaps you have. But So uh, he doesn't want to commit, and then, but she um, also finds other lovers. Now, now, part of this, for her, there's also politics going on because her old husband is a reactionary royalist. Uh, he's, he's called, um, he's the keeper of the king's, um, gardens. That's his position. And in return for that, he gets an apartment in the Louvre. That's where they live.
1: And he doesn't do any work.
2: Uh, no, he, no. he has assistants who do the work for him. And this is a typical, um, uh, feature of the old French system. Um, but now it's, a, a new age. There, there are, you know, new, um, um, thoughts in the air. New trends are happening. And clearly, whichever way France goes, it's not going to go his way. You know, it's not going to stay with reactionary royalism. So she is looking out for herself. She's looking out for her son. And so she already has this, um, this clerical lover who's, who's very political and who's going along with the new tide. Here's this American, the smart, interesting American, maybe maybe... Maybe I should attach myself to him. A little later on, a young English nobleman will show up in well, Paris. Well, wait.
1: Let's go back to Gouvernante. We, we this could spend smart, a lot of time on her. Yes. Uh, no, that uh, just to tell a little bit more about him and why he was so attractive to women.
2: Well, uh, why? I think. I mean, there were think, there are a
1: number of reasons. Yeah, yeah. Here. Well, yeah. I
2: think I think part of it is his own past. Um, people who were here in the earlier lectures may remember uh, that he's the child of his father's second marriage. Uh, He has three older half-brothers. They were the sons of the first marriage. But in the second marriage, there are four daughters in him. So he's got this much older father. He's got these older half-brothers, almost a generation or half a generation older. So his family circle is mother and my four sisters, and me. So he's the little princeling. And he's also, he's very smart. Uh, Someone who knew the Morris family said he was smarter than all his brothers put together. Um, So, you know, he he grew up being around women. He must have been um, petted by them, admired by them. And, you know, he likes that. He comes to like that. But but it
1: was also clear from your book that... He loved women, too. He loved listening to them. He that's cared right. about them. He respected them in a way we don't read about. The, uh, the we don't or...
2: often think of, pe- no. of men in that time being. No. no, that's right. And I remember when I was writing this book, I was telling a friend of mine, journalist friend of mine, I said, you know, the reason he, he had all these girlfriends is that he just he, he paid attention to women when they talked. And my, my male friend said, oh, don't put that down. <laughs>
1: Well, don't, don't raise the bar too high I found high for that us. really uh, wonderful because our, our first program, I was, I was holding up the cover of the book that was really not an attractive portrait right. of him. And, you know, in reading more of the um, stories and the remarks about him, that he was, uh, people thought he was striking and he, his, he posed for George Washington's um, statue. Yes. Um, you know, I, I wish we had images or someone had drawn him in that light, because right, we there, couldn't find any.
2: There's only one picture of him, I think, which, which really, like, suggests what he might have been like. He, and he's not classically handsome, but there is this one picture. He's attractive. I mean, he's got, he's got nice eyes. He's got a nice smile. I mean, he looks like he's smart, and he looks like he might be a little trouble. So I, I can see that, you know, that, well, that he was charming. The the other thing, the <clears throat> other reason why I think he was so um, interested in women, uh, he loses his leg. You know, this 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 was um, uh, an injury that you can't conceal. Uh, he had a carriage accident in Philadelphia. He caught his foot in the wheel of his carriage when it was starting up and the ankle got mangled and, and the doctor said, well, we get, we got to cut it off, and they, they cut it off below the knee. And then his own doctor was out of town, and when this physician came back, uh, he heard what had happened and he said, well, you know, I really don't think they had to do that. So, <laughs> great. Um, and this is a man who's he's tall, he's good-looking, he's active, but he's got this peg leg. Uh, which everybody will see every day of his life. So he has something to prove. I mean, I think it begins even earlier with this, like this older, remote father and these older half brothers. You know, he's also kind of naturally pitted against them, and now he's got this this peg leg. He's got he's got something to prove, and he he um, see, finds opportunities to prove it o- over and over again.
1: Okay, we're going to move on now. All right. okay. yeah, Because that relationship, it seemed like they, they were really in love with each other, but just couldn't ever make it work. Right. So we'll get back to that. So um, it, before we move on, I just want you to briefly, if you can, talk about what the Americans thought of France at this time, after the American Revolution, and as opposed to the colonial period, and just set up how how their relationship is going to move on once we have right. the French Revolution?
2: Well, it's it's a funny um, change happened because for so much of the colonial period, France was the enemy and the villain. Uh, you know, France was this Catholic power that was hostile to to the mother country. Uh, France is up there in Canada. France is stirring up Indian raids on our frontier. You know, and and, and France um, obeys the Pope. You know, so there, there's lots of things for America, especially Protestant America, to be fearful of. But then comes the Revolution, and they take our side, um, and we're deeply grateful for this. Uh, Washington, George Washington, has a portrait of Louis XVI, which he hangs at Mount Vernon. Uh, Lafayette, we all fall in love with. The whole country falls in love with him. Here's this idealistic he's nineteen years old when he comes over here. This idealistic aristocratic volunteer who sees, you know, America as this great place, this nursery of freedom. You know, we're flattered by that obviously. And and we're also incredibly impressed that this guy is putting his, his life and his money and his his whole career on the line for us. And he's not the only one. There are other officers uh, coming over here. And so, so this layer of suspicion on top of it is now this layer of gratitude. And then the other thing is that France is just huge. I mean, France is the biggest country, the, the most populous country in Europe at this time. It's 24 million people. Uh, all of Britain and Ireland is only 15 million. And we're about 3 or 4 million. So France is this huge country. It's sophisticated. It's powerful, and that's both attractive and you know, maybe it's alarming, you know. Because we have very conflicted notions here about luxury, largely because we don't have a lot of it. But so we're both interested. We're envious. We also think, well, we're, we must be virtuous, you know, because we're simple and pure. Uh, but let me see some more of it. I mean, it, you know, it's it's this this mixture. And so here our hero is, is, is going over here, uh, over to France to sample all this.
1: And at that time, was there a, a general feeling or idea the French had of Americans, except that we owed them money?
2: <laughs> well, they romanticized us. Um, you know, they felt, they sort of felt like our patrons because they had helped us win our freedom. Um and they'd given a black eye to England at the same time, which they liked. But they also romanticized us. They thought, Ah, look at these look at these um, people in the wilderness, um, these virtuous peasants. And here here Like Ben Franklin. Well, yeah, he was right. He was certainly no peasant <laughs> oh. and maybe not that virtuous, but he knows how to but didn't he knows he wear how that, to play the part. Didn't oh, he wear yes.
1: that hat? That hat. He
2: wore that fur cap, which <clears throat> was the same fur cap in a famous print of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This was no accident. Franklin picked that very deliberately. But, so there's this image of Americans. Well, yes, of course, they're across the ocean, and they're, they're poor, and they're simple, but, but maybe they have a virtue that, that we don't have, and wouldn't it be good if we could somehow you know, acquire that ourselves? And uh, I know those are Lafayette's thoughts. I think those are the thoughts, maybe of other officers who came and fought in our revolution. So that—that's what France thinks of us.
1: So, what was Gouverneur Morris's relationship with Jefferson, Lafayette, and Payne?
2: Okay, we have some of them who
1: were all here. in France.
2: Yes, right. Okay, here we go. This is Thomas Jefferson, uh, kind of. Uh, Kind of an unfamiliar image, but he, he's in France as a diplomat, and that's why he looks so, you know, kind of uh, formal and almost uh, urban. Uh, this is Thomas Paine, who never looks formal ever. Um, and he, he, born in England, comes over to America. Uh, he is the great uh, journalist of the American Revolution. Uh, his pamphlet, Common Sense, sells 150,000 copies which if you multiply for the population that would be 15 million now which was pretty pretty was good sale. Was that the
1: pamphlet that helped Washington's men cross the Delaware?
2: Well or was that there another that one? was that was these are the times that try mens souls. That was the essay called The American Crisis. Um, the best journalistic lead that has ever been written in in my opinion. And this whoops, well lost it. This of course ah, this is the mark Okay. This is the Marquis de Lafayette, (laughs) Um, looking very uh, uh, aristocratic, which he was, very young, which he also was. Uh, So these are people, when Morris arrives in France, they're all there. Jefferson is ending his tenure as our minister to France. Um, He he, um, replaced Benjamin Franklin on the job, and he won't go back to the United States until November of 1789, and then he'll become Secretary of State. Uh, Payne is going back and forth uh, between England and France because he's invented a model for a bridge, uh, an iron uh, suspension bridge, and, and he's looking for investors to build this thing. And so he's trying in England and he's trying in France, and in his travels back and forth, um, he gets caught up in the politics of the French Revolution, in which he takes a great interest. And, of course, Lafayette has, has gone home, uh, he's he's made a great uh, a from his role in the American Revolution. He lets he doesn't let anybody ever forget it. English is spoken in his house. His messenger is dressed as an American Indian. <laughs> he names his son George Washington and his daughter Virginie. And uh, so, all right, he's hamming it up. He's he's putting on an act, but you know he earned it. He did. He earned it over here, so I, I sort of forgive him these airs that he puts on. But these are all men that that, that Morris knew from from the Revolution. Now, and he what, finds them what,
1: embarrassing. how did they relate to each other? Well, and...
2: how they relate to each other, uh, uh, Jefferson, and uh, oh, damn it, here we go. I'll learn this one day. Okay, Jefferson and Lafayette worked together uh, in. The, the days, middle of 1789, uh, to write a declaration for the rights of man for France as the revolution begins. Um, so this would be a French Bill of Rights. And uh, this is something that the liberal leaders of the revolution think is very important. And Jefferson also thinks so. He thinks it's a great idea. And he contributes ideas to, to what became and still is, the Declaration of the Rights of Man um, that, that, that France enjoys.
1: Now, do they do this at Jefferson's home?
2: Uh, yeah, Jefferson has a house in Paris, and people meet there, um, and they do it at their own, you know, Holmes, Lafayette's, and, and other people, and they but,
1: dined together and had well, wines. And- oh
2: yes, and Jefferson is a great host. Uh, he also uh, knows a lot about wine. He's one of the few Americans who who does. Governor Morris also knows something about good wine, and he, you know, he enjoys Jefferson's company. They get along fine. There is one anecdote that that someone said that Morris's um, uh, stories that were kind of off color could make Jefferson blush to the roots of his hair. So that's what somebody said. Take, take it for what it's worth. Now, um, okay, now we're coming up to, uh, yes, now we're coming up to, damn it, we're coming up to this. Do you want
1: me to try this? Rip-
2: no, 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 <laughs> I got, I'll get it, don't worry. <laughs> this, of course, is the fall of the Bastille. And this happens in July 1789. Uh, so, So one thing always to remember in the history of this period is that George Washington is inaugurated president for the first time in April of 1789. The Bastille falls in July. So three months after our new system, our new constitution is up and running, the French Revolution begins. And it doesn't end really until Waterloo which is 1815. So the first 26 years of American history under the Constitution happen in parallel to the French Revolution. And it doesn't just stay overseas because France is our old ally. France is one of the two superpowers of the world, the other being England. And there are Americans who have ties to France There are lots of Americans who have feelings about France. Uh, There become Americans who are pro and against the revolution. And this is happening while we are testing our system out and getting our legs under this new system. There is this huge vortex across the Atlantic, which ultimately engulfs all of Europe and will engulf us in the War of 1812. The War of 1812 is a spin-off of the Wars of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. We managed to keep out of it until then, but finally we are sucked into it.
1: Now, where was Gouverneur Morris when the Bastille fell?
2: Well, he he came to see it the next day. I mean, he was at his he had um, uh, lodgings uh, in Paris, and then he heard that this had happened. So he went out the next day in a carriage with uh, Madame de Flau, you know, his, his uh, girlfriend, uh, and uh, a, third, a third person, friend of hers, a, a clergyman friend of hers, just to see what was going on. And they, you know, they see here's this prison, uh, which is in the process of being demolished. Uh, a mob has broken into it. Uh, they've executed the governor of the prison. There weren't many prisoners in it. Uh, the most famous was the Marquis de Sade. Um, uh, the Bastille, as a prison, the Bastille was mostly used by aristocratic families to put their black sheep. So that's why uh, Sade ended up there, and he, you know, and he spent his time writing pornography, and and his his wife would would carry it out for him. I mean, they had, they had quite a relationship. But uh, so uh, here's this astonishing thing: this prison has been attacked. Uh, overwhelmed they're tearing it down they've also taken the mob has taken the muskets that were in there the weapons that were in there so now you know ordinary people in Paris uh, are armed and um, you know Morris writes in his diary well maybe you know maybe at Versailles they'll uh, they'll realize that things are not perfectly quiet um, the things have taken a turn it's no longer back here at the oath of the tennis court it's it's gone it's beginning to go beyond the politicians and the people who are trying to manage this thing. It's beginning to get a momentum of its own. Not all at it once. Uh, it'll take several years for it to really get rolling. But but this is the uh, beginning of it.
1: Now, what did he s- see with the mob? I mean, when he came. Uh, when
2: it- well, not there, but a, but a week later, he was he was at a place called the Palais Royal, uh, which had a lot of. Um, shops and restaurants and coffee houses. And uh, he had dinner there, and he was waiting for his carriage to take him back to his apartment. And a mob came by, and they were carrying on a pike uh, the head of a former member of the government. Uh, he was a, a, a man named Monsieur Foulon. And they were dragging the rest of his body uh, behind his head, and Morris sees this. And then he learns the next day that they took this to show it to Foulon's son-in-law, and then they executed him and cut off his head and paraded it around also. And the reason they did this is there was a rumor um, that uh, Foulon was was keeping bread out of Paris to starve Paris into submission, uh, which is almost certainly untrue. But this is this is what this mob believed, and so they tore him apart. And so Morris Morris has lived through the American Revolution. I mean, he's been to Valley Forge. He had to evacuate Philadelphia when the British uh, conquered it. You know, he's he's been at or close to battles and and violence, but he but he's never seen anything like this, and he's shaken, and he, you know, and he, he's writing this in his diary, and and. A little after that, he hears of another story where a baker, you know, again, food is an issue because of these bad harvests and bread can be scarce. So uh, a baker gets his head cut off and they show it to the baker's wife and apparently she just died on the spot. She was so, so shocked by it. And Morris is shocked. And he says, gracious God, what a people. I mean, he has trouble processing and after the baker um, gets it, he 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 writes in his diary. I mean, everybody's talking about the dawn of liberty here, but this is the worst spot on earth. You know, th- this is what's going on here. Uh, and he even says, and he's not a religious man, but he but he says, you know, um, God won't allow this to go unpunished. So he's really he's really stirred and and shaken by what he's seeing, and then. You know, um, being sort of a cheerful sort, you know, the next day in his diary it'll be, well, I got up and I met so-and-so and and we talked about the tobacco contract and I had lunch with somebody else. And, you know, so sort of normal life seems to resume. But then events like this start happening more and more frequently.
1: Now, in what way was he, as as you have said in your book, Washington's eyes and ears?
2: Well, yes. One thing he's doing, he's there in Paris to make money. And, and to help Robert Morris make money. But George Washington has also asked him, uh, at first, to be his personal shopper. Um, he, you know, he, he likes Morris. They have worked together during the Revolution, also at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, Washington has, um, he likes smart young men. I mean, Hamilton is the, the obvious example. But you know, even Jefferson is in Washington's cabinet. Uh, Morris is another one. Uh, There there are others that Washington patronize, takes under his his wing. So he says to Morris, um, you know, I'd I'd like a watch. I'd like a new pocket watch. And he gives, you know, I say, I want it large, but I want it plain. I don't want anything fancy. And then Morris um, goes to look for table decorations for the president's table.
1: Is this before the Bastille fell?
2: Yeah, this is, this is some of his early Before all the you know. mobs. And- well, you know, but even after the mobs there's still, you know, selling shopping. nice thing. Oh yeah, shopping, shopping okay. goes on. Uh, so he, he, he does buy ornaments for Washington's table, which um, I don't know if they're at Mount Vernon, but we still, we still have them. I think they may be at Mount Vernon. But so he's, he's doing this kind of thing for Washington but then as events you know, start start becoming more serious, uh, Morris also writes letters to Washington describing what's going on. And this will eventually give Washington the idea to make Morris our minister to France, our ambassador. Because remember, Jefferson has left in November of 89, and we don't pick a substitute for quite a while. Uh, and Morris will finally get that job in 1792.
1: Now, can we turn back to the... Lafayette and Payne
2: mm-hmm.
1: and talk about Gouverneur Morris and his relationship with Lafayette.
2: well, they meet at Valley Forge um, you know, and uh, I think it's admiring at first, although when when Morris gets to France, he notices something about Lafayette uh, which other people also notice, including Jefferson, and that is that. Lafayette likes the applause that he gets. You know, and Lafayette is an honorable man. He will never do a dishonorable thing in his life. But he's also a dramatic man. He likes being at the center of things. He likes it when people like him. Jefferson actually uses a, a pretty harsh phrase. He says Lafayette has a canine appetite for popularity. That's pretty rough. But, um, so Morris notices that about him. And you know, in the early days of the revolution, a- after the fall of the Bastille, Lafayette is named head of a new institution, which is the National Guard. Uh, and they decide, all right, let's expand the military forces. Let's not have it be a preserve of the nobility. Let's get ordinary uh, people involved, and Lafayette will be the commander. And the most lasting thing Lafayette does is he comes up with the national color scheme because the ca- the cockades he makes for the the garde nationale are red, white, and blue, and white is the color of the house, of the bourbon house the the reigning house of France, and red and blue are the colors of the coat of arms of paris so and that 's still the french the french flag and, and lafayette um, Lafayette thought of that so so he's at the head of the national guard and um, Morris asks him one night. He says, "Well, uh, would your men obey you?" Uh, and he says, "Well, they won't do guard duty in the rain, but they'd follow me into battle." And then Morris's comment in his diary is, "He'll have an opportunity to make the experiment."
1: And that experiment came. Um, now, I, I don't know if this was part of that what we call the Second French ah, Revolution. you're thinking the run-up went, to When the it. Yes. king and queen were trying to. Yes. Well, 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 let's go back because the king and queen were in Versailles and 6,000 women came yes, to bring them back to Paris. Yeah, this is Paris, short, shortly the after
2: the fall of the Bastille. Yeah. They don't want the king and queen to be at Versailles, which is miles away from Paris. They want them in Paris, you know, and part of it is, you know, be with us, lead us, but it's also be under our eyes. Right. I mean, it's a double edged thing. And then in um, 1791, uh, the king, uh, at Easter of that year, he wants to go to Saint-Cloud, which is not as far away as Versailles, but it is, at that time, outside a town. And he just wants to spend a religious uh, retreat there. And they won't let him. I mean, his carriage uh, tries to leave his his, uh, palace in Paris. Uh, A crowd stops it, including members of the National Guard, Lafayette tries to order his soldiers to let the carriage go. They won't. Uh, There's this stalemate for a couple of hours. And finally, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette stay put. But this convinces the king and the queen, uh, we're prisoners. And so they try to flee uh, uh, the country in, in June. It's called the flight to Varennes. And they try to get to Flanders, which is now Belgium, and was then owned by Austria. And Marie Antoinette is Austrian. So so this would be going back to territory of her relatives. And they're stopped at a town called Varennes, just before the border, and they're hauled back by a by a crowd of peasants, also led by, um, by, by Republican, no, not Republican yet, by French military. Uh, and so this is uh, summer of 1791. At that Point, Morris has made a trip to England uh, for business, you know, more of these business opportunities, and he learns of it when he comes back. And I think that's really the the break in people's respect for royalty. And the king will hang on for another year. Uh, and so will Lafayette. But they're both um, their charisma has gone at that point. Uh, while the king was on the road, a young lawyer from Arras named Maximilien de Robespierre uh, said to Lafayette in the National Assembly, if the king gets away, you will answer for it with your head. Um, The king didn't get away, so Lafayette didn't have to answer for it with his head, but Robespierre will go on to have a a career.
1: Now, wasn't there a moment when there was another uh, riot or murders and uh, just unless it was something that happened beforehand that we were talking about, when Gouverneur Morris and his girlfriend, Mademoiselle Flauher.
2: Flau. Flau.
1: Made love. They made (laughs) love. They made love and, and just had an affair. They just, you know, sunk into each other's. Well, they Arms. were doing
2: that a lot. Um, <laughs>
1: but it was just the, right after this, this horrifying incident. Well, so they it, were
2: doing a lot of that, too. I mean, they, they made love once in her old, uh, they went to a convent where her old uh, guardian was living as a nun, and they made love in the waiting room of the convent. Um, <laughs> they made love in carriages. Um, they made love in her apartment. They made love in his apartment. They never spent a night together. There was one biographer who did very careful counting. They never spent a whole night together.
1: But they did have a vision together of what the French government should be. Well,
2: they talked about that um, because she's also still uh, Talleyrand's lover and he's very political. And they they draw up a ministry, you know, well, who should be the king's advisors? And they want to make Talleyrand the main one, you know, and they fill in all the slots. And uh, (laughs) one thing. uh, Adelaide de Flau says as well, I would give I would give the queen a lover every night and a mass every morning. <laughs> you know, and that will keep her uh, happy. And then she also tells Morris, she says, uh, enfin, mon ami, we will, we will govern France, you know, if Talleyrand gets this job. And then Morris writes in his diary, actually, the kingdom is in much worse hands. So, you know, th- those were their hopes. But by the time of the flight to Varennes, this becomes increasingly unrealistic because the temper of things is going beyond this liberal aristocratic leadership under which the revolution began. It's getting out of the control of people like Lafayette and Talleyrand.
1: And the soldiers went to Gouverneur Morris's home to well, see if he happens. was hiding okay. arms, yes. right? This
2: happens a year later. I said that Louis hung on uh, four years after his attempted flight. But the second French Revolution is August 1792. And there is an attack on the Tuileries Palace, which is where the king is living. Uh, the Swiss Guard tries to defend him. These are soldiers from Switzerland who are in his service. They are massacred. Uh, Hundreds of them are massacred. Their corpses are mutilated and burned. Uh, Morris is across the river when this is happening. He hears the cannon and he hears the muskets and he writes, you know, this looks like warm work today. Uh, The king is hustled away uh, to temporary safety, but uh, in September he is deposed and a republic is declared. He will be tried in the following January. But back in August, after this uh, this riotous attack on the Tuileries Palace, there's also a knock at Morris's door, and uh, the leader of the local section, which is, you know, the neighborhood group that, that is keeping the eye on the neighborhood for the revolution. Uh, They come to his door and they say, we have a report that you're hiding arms here. We are going to search your house. And Morris says, I'm a diplomat from a friendly nation. This is outrageous. I want your name and I want the name of your superior because I'm going to make a complaint. And he bluffs them out of there. He just bluffs them out of there. Now, he wasn't hiding arms, but he was hiding aristocratic friends. Uh, he hid his his girlfriend at one point in his house. He also hid her husband. Uh, he hid some other people. Um, so it was uh, you know it was a near run thing. And then the next day, the 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 superior of this man who no- knocked at his door came all apologies. Oh, we're sorry, but you know you realize in a revolution, you know mistakes can be made, and we hope mm-hmm. it's all right. Fine, fine. You know, but, but again, um, you know, this, this thing, he, he's got a bubble of protection because, because he's an American and, and also uh, Washington makes him our minister to France. He's gotten that job early in 1792. So he's, so he's a diplomat and he's in fact the only diplomat who stays in France throughout the whole uh, of what will become the reign of terror. Because every other country breaks off relations with France, all their diplomats go home. So he's the only one who's staying in Paris, and he, so he has that bubble. But um, who knows? You know, accidents can happen, and it's a it, it's a tense, it's a tense, dicey thing.
1: And he did stop writing in his diary.
2: Yes, he does. About this time, he starts shortening the entries, and then uh, when the king is executed, which is January uh, seventeen ninety-three. Uh, he realizes, I can, I, I'm not going to keep writing in this diary because if it falls into the wrong hands, it could compromise people. So I'm going to, going to stop uh, recording it. We do have letters that he writes, you know, back, back to America, to back Jefferson. to the Secretary of State. That's mm-hmm. right, that's technically his boss because Jefferson is the Secretary of State. Uh, he also writes um, fellow American diplomats who are in Holland one of them, are William Short, he's our man in uh, Holland, and he is as appalled by the revolution as Morris is. And he, he writes this letter to Morris from Holland, and, and Morris writes him back, and he says, you know, criticisms of a country should probably not be confided to its post offices. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, don't, uh, don't write me this stuff. Um, so, so, yes, it's dangerous. Um, it's, it's gone from being his, his sort of spring break in Paris to being this, this deadly, deadly thing. Oh, yes, also after, after the August attack on the Tuileries Palace, Adelaide de decides that, that she and her husband have, have to leave the country. So she goes to uh, an official of the new regime that has come in after the king is deposed. And she asks for a passport. Uh, and this is in the morning. This guy has is, 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 is just gotten up. you know, And he says, uh, no, I can't, I can't issue you a passport. Uh, and then he goes uh, off into a side room to have his hair done. And he's left a stack of passports on his desk. And she reaches for them, but he sees it through his door, his interior door. And he comes back out and he says, well, they're valueless, of course, without my signature. And she leaves with the passports that she wants. And we don't know what happened. Did she have to sleep with this guy? Did she have to bribe him? Or did he just get his jollies by the threat? She got the passports, she gave one to her husband.
1: But one of the passports had his signature.
2: Well, yes, he, he signed it. them. Well, yeah. or he, he at least signed one. Ha- he signed was, one and in- he either signed them all. Cuz or... he said
1: to her, I didn't sign them, so they're useless to you.
2: No, no, that's before when she oh. reaches for them, he says, I haven't signed them. I've got to sign them. She leaves with signed passports.
1: Oh, she now
2: I get with the story. Signed passports. <laughs> and she gives one to her husband. And so this is the, the end of this, this, this comic cuckold. He doesn't use it right away, and he gets arrested. He's in uh, Boulogne, I think, you know, on the channel. And then he bribes his jailers. He gets out, but they arrest his lawyer. So he turns himself in to save his lawyer, and he's executed. So he, uh, the comte de flau for all his... <laughs> Okay. You know, failings, he has a noble end.
1: In a minute, because we, we have about a minute or two left, um, could you tell us what Gouverneur Morris thought about the ability of the French to i trying to get one question from the audience, but I thought that was interesting, right. what he thought that's the about key, the French.
2: That's, that, that's the key thing, the, the key lesson he takes from this and that we, you know, we can react to that and have our own thoughts about it. But, but he thinks from day one, he likes the French, he has French friends, but he doesn't think they're capable of, of running their political affairs because they have no experience. Uh, it's been a top-down system uh, for decades and decades. It, he, in his view, it's not like America where there were elected houses of colonial assembly. So there's been no experience in politics. There's been no experience at all in running your own affairs. They're trying to do it all at once too soon. Uh, At one point, he writes, "You know, they want an American Constitution, but they don't know—they don't realize they don't have Americans to run it Um, today." That we would call that probably foreign policy realism. You know that uh, the rights of man are not universal. Uh, They're too. Bound up in history and the history you have and the history you don't have. And that's a contentious point. But but this is the view that Morris has, and this was his experience in France. And he, um, he will maintain those opinions when he leaves, which is at the end of 1794. Finally, France asks that he be recalled, uh, and he'll hold them all his life.
1: Okay, let's get one sure. question in front. Why did the French Revolution take a more extreme course than the American Revolution?
2: Well, I I think one reason is what Morris said. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're they're going from a standing start. They're trying to get to 60 miles an hour from from zero. Um, Another uh, another, uh, quality of it is that this first um, representative assembly is all by itself. You know when the when the three estates become decide to merge with the commoners and there'll be this this one legislature uh, that's it. There's no checks, there's no balances. It's it's one uh, legislature and it's meeting in Paris. And therefore it is subject to pressures from the Parisian street. You know, in Paris is 600,000 people which is a big city then. London is almost a million, so it's not quite as big as that, but it's huge, much bigger than anything in America. So you have this one house that has all the political power or says it has or wants to have it, and it's also being pressured by who, you know, who can turn out the crowds. And, and that's, um, that turns out to be a very fickle
1: mixture. So our next program... Is Leave
2: poor France ha- Hamilton's the state.
1: Hamilton's best friend uh, finally finds the love of his life. Yes. A Randolph in America who was shunned from her family, and he just has such uh, concern and love for her. Um, and they have a
2: happy... Well, ha- you'll see what kind of marriage well, they and, have.
1: And, uh, you'll so also
2: get to see he's at Hamilton's deathbed. So this all well, happens the, when the he duel, comes... When, right? he comes, when he comes back to America, he spends five more years in Europe, uh, but he will come home, and we will do that on our next uh, program.
1: Love and the Duel.
2: That's right. Yes,
1: okay. So um, I just want to remind everyone that um, Rick will be signing his books in our 77th Street side of our building, our NY History Store. Let's thank Rick so much for being
0: with us tonight. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at nyhistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.